Well, amen. I, uh, are y'all glad to be here? All right, all right. I, um, usually when the, the senior pastor isn't here, I was told when the cat is away, the mouse will play. Uh, but you guys are faithful in coming. That tells me you love Jesus more than Richie, and I like that, because you should. And uh, so that's good. Uh, guys, I'm, I'm here to do two things today. I um, I'll always try to be clear where I'm going with my preaching. Uh, two things the Lord has sent me here today. Number one, edify the church. Now, by church, I mean believers. I'm here to edify and build you up. Um, secondly, I'm here to encourage the lost. Um, I'm always uh, aware my primary audience in preaching is the church, with a secondary audience to know that some of you have not put your faith and trust in Christ. And I want to edify the believer and I want to encourage the law. So I want to do that in Psalm chapter 95 that you saw read to you uh, just a few moments ago. Uh, so take your Bibles, turn them on, open them, whatever you do, and, uh, and uh, turn with me to Psalm chapter 95. Um, I'm going to be in Psalm 95, and I'm going to try to... What I did was with this uh, chapter, uh, I call it a chapter uh, in the book of Psalm, but um, I, I think it's a series of verses that um, we have set aside as the psalmist has set aside for praising and for challenging and for other reasons. But Psalm 95 is two parts. I'm going to deal with the first part today and, uh, in Psalm 95. As I thought about this, this season of Thanksgiving, we're really in a transition period now. We're in a transition period from, from Thanksgiving into Christmas. We're in a season of transitioning from gratefulness to the manger. And, uh, and really in this transition period, I'm going to tell you, I, um, I'm in a, in, a, in a season of my own life to where I really believe Thanksgiving, a season of gratefulness in America, has become a season of entitlement. We think we are entitled to the things that we have. So I'll, we all watch Facebook. You can try to ignore it if you want to, but we live in the realm of social media. And I, and I noticed a lot of people begin the 30, 30, 31 days, ever how you want to say it, of gratefulness for Thanksgiving on November the 1st. And as I watch most of this, here's the things I see. I'm so grateful for my health. I'm so grateful for my children. I'm so grateful for the food on my table. I'm so grateful for my hearing and my seeing. And I'm so grateful... Things went well this year. And I can't help but to pause for a moment and say, yeah, I'm very grateful for those things, but what about my brothers and sisters who don't have that luxury? What about our brothers and sisters who are overseas in Brazil and other parts of the world that they would die to eat the turkey that you ate on Thanksgiving? And in America, if we're not careful, we become entitled to these things. And we get mad when we don't get them. We go to Walmart and we expect to get our turkeys and we get there and we find out they're doubled in price or they're stuck on a ship somewhere in the ocean waiting to land and no one can get a hold of them. And we enter into a time of entitlement. Psalm 95 has taught me something here. Psalm 95 has taught me that when you and I begin to worship the resources more than the source, 
God has a way of dealing with our resources to make us turn our attention back to the source. In Psalm 95, God is dealing with some resources to pull them away from us and get us back to our attention on God. So I took Psalm 95 and I created about a, I don't know, probably a seven to ten week study of theology, which is theos, God, ologies, the study of, theologies, the study of God. And I took about a seven to ten week study and studied a theology of God from Psalm 95. So I'm here to have a theology class with you today. Now, I come very nervous. I come nervous because I sit in the middle of some BCF students who, who've probably taken theology. I, I come uh, representing and standing behind Brother uh, Richie Allen's pulpit who has a doctorate in, in many of those classes. So I come a little nervous to you, but that never triumphs what God's put in my heart. And uh, so I want to talk with you about the study of God. Now let me just go ahead and tell you where I'm going uh, with, with this uh, sermon. You and I had better not be so consumed with what we don't have that we miss what we do have. We'd better not be so consumed with what we don't have that we miss what we do have. So believers, I want to talk to you about where our worship should be. Non-believers, I want to talk to you about what sits at the table in front of you. Psalm 95. Guys, I'm going to read from CSB as well as ESV, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. Psalm 95, come let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Here's a CSB translation that I like best on this verse. Let us shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God. He's a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand. The mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands form the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep under his care. So number one, I want you to notice the attitude of the worship that which we come in. Now, we come here today singing praises to God. Now, I don't know if anybody's ever gave you a definition of praise, but um, how, how do you praise God? I'm one of those preachers that if I can't get my hands on what I'm saying, it does me no good. It may grow my mind, but I don't want my mind to grow. I want my heart to grow. You know, ignorance can have a big mind, but pitiful heart. And uh, so I want to get my hands around whatever I'm trying to understand. And uh, I just, that's just the way I work. So when I think about, I come here to sing praises, what did I come here to do? Uh, when I think about singing praise, I come here to do two things. Number one, I come to remember who God is, and I recall what God's done. Now I can praise Him. I can praise Him remembering who He is, and I can recall what He's done for me. And that's when I sing praises to His name. So let me make a statement. You cannot praise God for that which you do not know. One of my favorite songs is These Are the Days of Elijah. Anybody know it? So I did my own survey one time. It's our favorite song. And, uh, and I preach in a lot of Southern Baptist churches. And, and uh, so this is what I did. I said, does anybody love These Are the Days of Elijah? And man, hands went up any, everywhere. And I said, well, here's some lyrics in that song. These, these are the days of the light. This is the year of Jubilee. I said, anybody in this room, raise your hand and tell me 
what this is the year of Jubilee means. Now, if I did it in here, somebody would raise their hand and tell me what the year of Jubilee was. But that's because you've been trained to. So we sing it with our lips, not with our heart. Because you can't praise what you don't know. So John MacArthur made a statement for me that forever changed the way I worship. John MacArthur said, Tony, your worship will only go as high as you go deep in your knowledge of who God is and what He's done. So to praise God means I'm recalling who He is and remembering what He's done. Now I can praise God and I sing it with my lips. So the attitude of worship that we come, this psalm sets our attitude right. This psalm says, number one, he says in verse one, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So number one, the attitude of my worship, I, I'm to come joyfully into this place this morning. I'm to come with joy and I'm to come and sing joyfully to the Lord. Now I make this statement um, um, kind of casually, but I mean everything I say. I'm glad this says, let us make a joyful noise because you could put my singing ability and Jenna's singing ability and combine them together and I'm still not sure you get a joyful noise. So I'm glad God's the judge of this. Uh, but we're to come into the presence of God and we're to come joyfully. The second attitude that he says I'm to come is I'm to come thankfully. Verse 2 says... Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. So we're to come in this room joyfully, and we're to come into this room thankfully. Now let me pause for a moment, because that's the attitude of our worship. Let me pause for a moment and distinguish with you the word hypocrite and the word hypocritical. Because I believe in the church, believers, true believers, cannot be hypocrites. That's contrary to any preacher that you've probably heard. And here's why I say that. Only the Pharisees did Jesus call hypocrites. Never in God's Word did Jesus call His own believers hypocrites. No, that's what preachers calls believers, not Jesus. So let me distinguish it for you. A hypocrite in the New Testament literally means to put on a mask. So we just celebrated Halloween. The problem is that some of us look better with our mask on. We put on a mask it's to be somebody on the outside that we are not on the inside. That's the word hypocrite. So the Pharisees was being somebody on the outside they really wasn't on the inside. Jesus described a hypocrite for us when he said, y'all are whitewashed tombs inwardly filled with dead men's bones. Outside, whitewashed. You look clean. Inside, dead men. Hypocrite, be somebody on the outside, you are not on the inside. Is that the believer? Absolutely not. The believer is somebody on the inside, but yet don't portray that on the outside. Opposite than a hypocrite. So believers can't be hypocrites, but we can be hypocritical. For instance, Tony is saved completely on the inside. I can't get any more saved than I already am. But bless God, I don't always act like that on the outside. Did you and I ever confuse the gospel for somebody? Maybe not. We can be hypocritical. We can, we can appear to be lost on the outside. 
but completely saved on the inside. Now, the reason I had to pause and go there is because I'm not going to be hypocritical with you this morning. I can stand here and tell you the attitude of your worship should be joyfully and thankfully when I do not always enter the presence of the Lord joyfully and thankfully. I just come out of a season of my life, really a season of death. I attended more funerals than I did birthday parties. Buried more people than I watched born. Come out of a season of life of losing some loved ones. Come out of a season of life of right now walking through, watching some, some of my loved ones and, and dealing with cancer. And my mom's probably watching this, and I, I'll be a little transparent, not a lot. But I'm watching a mother day in and day out in critical, uneasing, constant, unending pain to where she can hardly walk. Now let's just be real. You and I don't always enter with thanksgiving and joy. Because when the Lord begins to deal with your resources, He's testing on where your heart is. We can act, I'll, I'll never forget it, guys. I had a, a young 20-year-old girl in, uh, in church where I was pastoring. She just went through a major divorce, lost her two kids. And she's running around our church campus, appearing to be the most bubbly and the most loving person on our campus. And I'll never forget, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, Tony, you need to talk to her tonight. I'm like, God, you're. I'm just going to be real with you, reminding God's conversations. God, you've lost your mind. This, this girl's fixing to eat my lunch. And she come in our sanctuary, and God, let, let me tell you, God just so happens our paths cross, and God said, okay, now, Tony, there's nobody around. You have no excuse. And I looked at her, and I said, so-and-so, because she may be watching. I said, now, listen. You're the most bubbly person on this campus. But I want you to know I can see through your bubbleness. And you may have everybody fooled here on the outside, but I see a young girl that is totally broken on the inside. And y'all, this 20-something-year-old mother who just went through a divorce and her life is crumbling, she's lost her family, and she's acting all bubbly. Now listen, around the very people she should be able to be transparent with. And I watched this girl just crumble in my arms as she began to weep and pour her heart out with what's really going on in her life. Now, guys, you can act, and I can act like we come in here always thankful and always joy-filled. And it's just not the case. So here's what I want to do with you. I want to give you some things, some truths about God from Psalm 95 that I believe if I stood in Brazil or in the Middle East or anywhere else before my brothers and sisters, 
we could be joy-filled and thankful for what Psalm 95 says no matter where this sermon's preached in the world. You ready? I want to talk to you on the subject about how awesome is awesome. There's an acronym with awesome. I don't know if it's originated with me or not, but uh, I've added to it, taken away. But I want to give you an acronym for awesome, and I want to tell you how good or how awesome God is. The letter A, God is the author of my salvation. Psalm 95 verse 1 Psalm 95 verse 1 says, Come, let us shout joyfully to the, to the Lord. Let us shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Now, I, I read the CSB because I like the translation, shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Very few other translations translates it that way. And you would say, Tony, why is that important? Because this idea of shouting triumphantly, some say sing were uh, sung joyfully, it is, it is, a, it is a battle cry. It is a, it is a war cry that the psalmist is saying that you and I come and this war cry only goes to Jesus. This war cry only goes to the rock of our salvation. It's a war cry of us crying out to this rock that he he and He alone owns our salvation. So here's what I would say about the rock of your salvation, that Jesus being the author of it, number one, He starts it. He starts it. Uh, when He starts salvation, this rock in the Hebrew language in verse 1, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind this is a reference to Exodus 17. So when I think about Exodus 17, if you remember with me, the Israelites are there in Manasseh because they even quote this in verse 8 of Psalm 95, talking about the place where the Moses strikes the rock, shouldn't have, and, and you know the story there. Uh, but that rock there, that rock was, number one, that rock was dead. Number one, there was no living water in it. It's not running. It is just a bunch of dry dust. There is no life in that rock. But this psalmist says, I come and I shout joyfully, triumphantly to the rock of my salvation. Listen, folks, I don't come here today and sing these songs because I can sing. I come in here today and I sing these songs because I have a song in my heart. Jesus has did something for me I couldn't do for myself. He took a rock that had no water in it, and just like Exodus 17, He put water in my rock and caused life to come in me. Is there anybody in here that can testify a moment in your life that Jesus had you dead in transgressions and sins? Nothing you did, but bless God, He was chasing you, and He put water in your rock and brought you to life. He starts your salvation. And if you and I can't get excited about anything in this room, we should be able to. Oh God, please don't let me become numb to the fact that at Bethel Baptist Church, I didn't go there hunting Jesus, but He came there hunting me. Please don't let me get numb to that. But now a lot of us are numb to it. Because when somebody makes a profession of faith in Christ... First place we go is we go online, and we should. We go online and put that we just got saved today. Praise God. Then I, then I get to reading the comments. I love the comments. Here's the comments I read. Tony, I'm so glad for the decision you made today. 
Tony, I'm so glad you decided to follow Jesus. Tony, I'm so glad you did this. Tony, I'm so glad. And I'm going, holy crap, Mo, my goodness, that Tony did not decide to follow Jesus today until Jesus came running after me and he called my name like he did Paul. And when Jesus called my name, guys, I'm telling you, my only response, when you see the grace of God, your only response is, hallelujah, praise God. He's put water in my rock. He's brought me to life. He's the author of my salvation. He starts it. Number two, He seals it. He seals it. Ephesians 1 says the Holy Spirit seals our salvation. Guys, to think that your life... I'm only going to make a quick statement and move on because Richie preached an outstanding message on this idea. But I'm just going to add to it. To think that you and I can do anything to keep our salvation means the Holy Spirit don't seal it, you do. And to think that you can add anything to your salvation to keep it means that whatever sin you think can lose it, Calvary's cross wasn't sufficient for it. Guys, He seals it in me. He seals it. Holy Spirit seals it. Number three, He also secures it. He's the author of my salvation. He starts it, He seals it, and He secures it. Quick statement, because i got a lot I want to get with you today. He secures it at my house at 7181 South State Highway 605. Jen and I put up a mailbox. It's a temporary mailbox. We put our name on it. But you know what? There's going to come a day, one day, my name's not going to be on that mailbox. Somebody else's name's going to be on that mailbox. There's 7.6 billion people in this world. And this, I'm going to make a crazy statement. I, did, I, I don't care if God decided to save all 7.6 billion people at this very moment. And everybody, I want you to know, number one, He's worthy of all their praise. But number two, if He saved every single one of them, I'm going to tell you there's a name on a mailbox in heaven that's got Tony D's name on it. And out of 7.6 billion people in the world, if we died all at this moment and went to heaven, not a single soul of them would get my mailbox in heaven. He secures my salvation. He secures it. Nothing I can do to secure it. It's finished. He's paid the price. So he's the author and the finisher of our faith. Guys, I, I have a hard time getting my mind around that. So I told Jenna, I said, Jenna, let me tell you the only way I get my mind around this. You just have to find out how my mind thinks. If you take a fish, take him out of the water, and put him on land, he's going to die. The reason he's going to die is because he's not designed to live on land. He's designed to live in the water. Now, guys, in the Garden of Eden, God created mankind. And he created us good. He, God formed us. Sin deformed us. So when sin deformed us, we're kicked out of the garden into a world that sin corrupted. And we are dead people in dead bones. And then inside of that, uh, the only way you and I can live in this sin-corrupted world is for Jesus to transform me into the fact that now I can live here. So let me illustrate it. You have a fish on dry land. Unless you give that fish a source outside of himself, he'll die. 
Now, believers, the reason you and I cannot live in this world unless the Holy Spirit enables us to live in this world is because believers was not designed to live in a sin-corrupted world. Now, if you think we're designed to live here, you're sadly mistaken. We're not designed to live here. We need, we need a source outside of ourselves to enable us to live in a sin-corrupted world. If not, we'll always be bent and broken towards sin. God Himself, Jesus Christ Himself, He, he has designed us so to live within Himself. So, guys, I'm telling you, He starts my salvation. He brings me to life. He seals my salvation within me through the Holy Spirit. And He secures my salvation for all of eternity. It all begins with Him and it all ends with Him. So, A, He is the author of my salvation, W. W, he's the all-wise God. He is the all-wise God. Psalm 95 verse 3 says, For the Lord is a great God. He is a great King above all gods. Now some would take this verse and radically mess it up. Would take this verse and say, Boy, the psalmist is practicing deism. There's more than one God. It even says that he's the great king above all gods. No, no, that's not what the psalmist is saying. What I would say the psalmist is saying here, and I think it's very clear, is the psalmist is talking about in Israel, whenever they begin to worship all these little idols and little gods, even when Aaron built the golden calf and he created these little gods that really didn't even exist, what the psalmist is singing to is the psalmist is singing that I want you to know the Lord uh, Yahweh, the, the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God, He is the great God, and He is above all of the other gods that you have tried to create. He is more wise than any of them. I borrow you a definition from Wayne Grudem uh, when it comes to the wisdom of God, and you don't want to miss this. It is, man, it's more encouraging to Jenna and I in this season of our life. Wayne Grudem says in the wisdom of God, God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals for my life and the best means to reach those goals. My stars. God always chooses the best goals for your life. Well, that's contrary to what mom and dad and grandparents and aunts and uncles tells us, isn't it? They tell us to set our heart to whatever goals that we want to accomplish. Set our minds to it. Set our hearts to it. Set our whatever you can dream, go after it. Dream big. Chase it. And we set our minds and our goals towards these hearts. No, no. Wayne, Wayne Grudem, I think, has nailed it to Psalm 95 verse 3 in the wisdom of God. He says, God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals for my life. That means that whatever's the best goals for Tony, God chooses them and He chooses the best means for Tony and Jenna to get there. I just need to surrender to Him and follow Him. To which I would respond, application. That means that salvation isn't, isn't God walking with me. That means salvation is me walking with Jesus. Genesis 5.24 says Enoch walked with God and he was not. Doesn't say God walked with Enoch and he was not. My dear soul in America, in America, we want God to walk with us. We want our life and we want our cake and eat it too. 
And when we die, I just want to go to heaven. And we don't hear very many sermons about forsaking all that you have and forsaking all that you are, giving up everything that you are, your family, and just trusting in Jesus. I want to make a bold statement when it comes to theology. Where God's taken you is always better than where God has you. Because Christ is always trying to take you somewhere new. It may just be to a deeper love of understanding of who He is. Where, where Christ is taking you is always better than where Christ has you. Now, I'm not saying the grass is always green on the other side because oftentimes people move too quick. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when God gets involved and when God begins to deal with your heart, either sanctification and He's always molded us into the image of Christ, but when God begins to deal with our hearts, where God is taking us is always, always better than where He has us. Because He is infinitely wise in His person. He's, man, He is, He's the all-wise one. Put it in the psalmist term, Psalm 95. He says, he, man, this Lord, this God, He's a great God. He's a great King. He's above all gods and who He is. So A, He's the author. W, He's all-wise. E, E is He's eternal. He's eternal. He's a God that cannot be created. He existed in eternity past and He'll exist in eternity future. He, he's what the Bible says the great I am. He's a continuation. There's never anything to where God's not. I would say He's the every present one. I would borrow a definition from Wayne Grudem again. Dr. Grudem says that God's eternity, this will blow your minds. God's eternity may be defined as this. God has no beginning, He has no end, and He has no succession of moments in His own being. But He sees all of time equally vividly as one picture, but yet God operates in events in time and acts in time in your life. Well, that's the God that you have trouble getting your minds around. He, he is eternal. People ask a question, so what will always last? And we quote the verse where, uh, the, the, the flower fades and the seasons change and, and, and that's the principle there. But he says the word of God lasts what? Forever. So the written word, the word of God. But I would ask you this question. Who's the living word? Jesus. So, so God is eternal. He, he lasts forever and ever. S. A, he is the author. W, he's wise. E, he's eternal. S is one of my favorite. He is sovereign. Now, guys, if we just get our minds around this idea right here, both young and old in this room, it'll edify the believer, and I'm telling you, it'll encourage the lost. Uh, I tell people all the time when they ask me about illustrations, I say, look, you don't have to get outside of God's word for illustrations. I, don't, I hardly ever borrow illustrations from other pastors. I, I, uh, I don't have to get far from... I think there's enough illustrations right here. So let, let's talk about some illustrations from God's Word and the sovereignty. I'm still in verse 3. I think verse 3 cannot be exhausted in Psalm 95. For the Lord, He's a great God, He's a great King. He is above all gods. And God being sovereign, I want to... Number one, I would say God is sovereign in His exercise power over His creation. Now, guys, there's not another book in the world that exemplifies this other than the book of Jonah. 
So you'll want to go back and, and study this, but I want to pull some things out of Jonah just briefly about a sovereign God. And, and, and if you don't have no recollection of Jonah, you need to go back and read it with this in mind. Read the book of Jonah with, number one, God was a sovereign over nature. God caused a great storm to come and beat against the boat to get his sovereign plan in order. God was sovereign over the rolling of the dice to cause them to fall on Jonah for them to throw Jonah overboard. God was sovereign over decisions that the very sailors would make to throw Jonah overboard. And I had somebody ask me, he said, so Tony, do you think I have no free will? I said, no, but I serve a God that is big enough that he is sovereign over even the decisions I make. Not that, he, not that he makes them for me, just that when I make decisions, he is so big, it doesn't thwart his plan. He is sovereign over the decisions that which we make. And here, he is very clear. He was sovereign over the rolling of the dice. He is sovereign over the decisions of the sailors to throw Jonah overboard. He was sovereign over the fish that ordained to swallow Jonah and take him to a specific destination. Now, some in this room would probably say it so well, but I'm telling you, if you study that in the Hebrew, you'll have a very hard time, no matter what scholars you read, you have a very hard time saying it was a well that swallowed Jonah. Heres I'm just dumb enough to believe that God is so big, He could have created some kind of fish so big enough just specifically for Jonah and ordained him because he uses the word ordained ordained him to go and get Jonah and take him to a specific location and that is exactly why that fish was created he was created for the purpose of taking Jonah to where he was supposed to go and God sovereignly ordains him Man, it gets even better. He was sovereign over the gourd that grew exactly where it needed to to fulfill the exact purpose that God intended. Now, if you study there, guys, that gourd grew in a desert. But God can give life wherever He desires. He was sovereign over the worm that He had ordained to kill the gourd. So in the book of Jonah, we see a very sovereign God over all creation. In the Old Testament, we see that God is sovereign over the nations. Matter of fact, in Jeremiah 17, 18, that I preached here, 15, 16, 17, uh, September the 12th, uh, we talked about this idea that God was sovereign over the nation. He called Nebuchadnezzar and even his enemies, he called as his servant. Guys, they're his servants. In the New Testament, we learn that he's sovereign over nature. The wind and the rain obey his voice. Can you imagine being the disciples? Just picture with it. Jesus is asleep in the boat. The wind and the rain's beating against him. And, uh, and Jesus, he's in the boat in the front and he's asleep. You remember why he's asleep? Because he's tired and weary. And the very Jesus that's tired and weary stands up from being tired and weary. And he looks at the wind and rain and says, peace be still. And all of the heaven of the atmospheric pressure just ceases to be in a rage. The very Jesus who was tired and weary and hungry is the very one who stood up and exercised complete sovereignty over all creation. Holy moly. And that is your Father. That is your Father. He exercised sovereignty over the animal kingdom. I don't know about you, but the way my mind works, if I would have been Noah and God told me to go and get these animals and put them on a boat, my first question to him was, is I don't have that many steel traps. I don't have absolutely no idea how am I about to catch these animals. And God, if it's up to me, I'm not going to fool with the gnat and mosquito and all those others. I, I, I'm, we're going to leave them here. I'm going to leave them here. I don't want them. God exercised complete sovereignty over the animal kingdom. 
that's not enough for you. I'm a fisherman. I love to fish. John 21, when Peter's in the boat and they wanted to cast their net, and Jesus says, I, I think Jesus has got a smile on his face. I think he's got a sense of humor. And he looks at him and says, guys, just, just cast your net on the other side of the boat. And you call me crazy. I don't know what, uh, I watch a lot of Andy Griffith, and I don't, know what, uh, I don't know what the whistle is for the fish talk, but you know there's a guy on Andy Griffith that, had the, that could talk to the fish. I don't know what that sounds like, but God whistles. And all the fish around that boat go to one side for Peter to cast his net on them. Now guys, if you've never been in a place to where unless God shows up, you're doomed. You need to get there. Because you learn to trust Jesus when there's absolutely no way your hands can grab a hold of it. I love to see churches get in a bind financially. Because, buddy, we'll hit our knees in a hurry. I've always said if our baptistries, if we were as important about our baptistries as we are our bank accounts, we'll save the world. Because we'll hit our knees in a hurry. We'll surrender everything for our bank accounts in America. We're not willing to surrender everything to see souls saved. I'm telling you, we, we got a God who is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over the spiritual kingdom. Job teaches us that, sovereign over Satan. He's sovereign over the demons as the demons whenever in the New Testament he sees Christ and he says, what in the world do you have with us? Don't kill us, don't do this, don't do that. God, what are you doing with us? And at least just let us go to the pigs and Jesus allows them to do it. He is sovereign over the spiritual kingdom. The one that gets me the most, He's sovereign over your sin. He's sovereign over your sin. I made a statement a while ago that unless you and I get in a place to where we're doomed, unless God shows up, we're done. The reality is, is everybody in the room is at that place. You're at a place and your sin has caused you to be separated from God. And the Bible says that even your righteousness can't do anything about it. One of my favorite gospel presentations, and I don't even know that I, I knew he'd come up with it. Uh, I, I tell people, I'm going to email James Merritt and says, James, you're getting rich off of something that I've been saying for years. James Merritt says, let me tell you the good news, but I can't tell you good news without bad news. Here's the bad news. You're sinful, fallen, and separated. Here's the worst news. You can't do anything about it. Here's the good news. God did something for you you can't do for yourself. Here's the best news that's available to you. Guys, you and I are in a place in our life and our sin has caused us to be separated. And unless God shows up and does something in your life, there's nothing you and I can do about it. That creates a worship in our life. And it is that this God, it is that this Jesus, the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is the great and the mighty one, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So here's what I would say about that. Who you say Jesus is will not change who He is. But who you say He is will greatly change who you are. Not going to change who He is. Who you say Jesus to be will not change who he is. Pharisees just thought he was a good teacher. Some just thought he was a prophet, much like Jeremiah and Elijah some thought he was. 
That didn't change who he was. But when Peter recognized Jesus in the question, Peter, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter recognized he was the Christ, the Messiah, sent to save me from my sins. It greatly changed who Peter is. Now, guys, I don't know who you think Jesus is in this room, but it's not going to change who he is. But I can tell you, when you see Jesus as the sovereign creator of this universe, he's sovereign over your life, he's sovereign over your finances, he's sovereign over your sin, he's sovereign over your decisions that you make, he is sovereign in your life. When you begin to surrender your life to that Jesus, bless God, you would be on your living room saying, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go. Send me, Lord. Because you're sovereign over it all. Worthy of all of my worship. He's the author. He's wise. He's eternal. He's sovereign. O stands for all the omnis. O-M-N-I. All the omnis. I would just make a brief statement about omnipotent. I love Psalm 45 verse 4. In his very hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. I'm talking about, man, we're talking about a God who is absolutely all-powerful. But I want to take omnipotent to a step further. I don't think God is only all-powerful, guys. I think God has all authority. And it brings great comfort to my life. You and I have a lot of power. For instance, when Jen and I leave here today, we have all the power in us to run every red light between here and Rehoboth. And she may practice that some. We got the power to do it. It's in that gas pedal. The problem is we don't have the authority to do it. And because we exercise the power, but yet we don't have the authority, there's something called a super trooper. And he's got the authority I don't have. He can write me a ticket. Now, guys, we got a God in heaven, our Father, that saved us from our sins. Now, listen to me. He's not just all-powerful in His omnipotence. He has all authority, which means He can exercise that power whenever He wants to and however He wants to operate it. Some people say, boy, I just want a just God. No, you don't want the justice of God. You don't want the justice of God. I'm here to tell you, in the justice of God, we'd all be crispy critters. But when it comes to an all-authority, all-powerful of God, He has the authority to operate any way He wants to operate. But here's the good thing. God doesn't do what's just. God does it, and it becomes just because He's the standard. Whatever He does is just because He can't do anything but just. He's the right standard. And the good thing is about the authority of God is He's always doing what's for our highest good and His greatest glory. And we can put our trust and faith in Him. So He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, all-authority, omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time. I would borrow from Dr. Wayne Grudem again because he gives the most practical illustration. I like this. He says, God does not have size or spatial dimensions. He is present everywhere at the point of space with His whole being, not part of Him, His whole being. Yet, listen to this, God acts differently and in different places. So He is present with all authority. Never sleeps nor slumbers. He's always working with all power and all authority. Then I don't have to talk much about the omniscience of God. 
Psalm, four and, um, Psalm 95, 4 and 5. The depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains. Guys, that is just a symbolically understanding that there is at the highest of mountains to the depths of the earth. There's absolutely nothing in between here that God doesn't know about. Guys, there's nothing in your life that God doesn't know about. Nothing in your life that God doesn't know, God doesn't know about. That's encouraging, isn't it? But let me tell you what encourages Jenna and I. There's nothing in our tomorrow that God doesn't know about. There's nothing in our tomorrow that God doesn't know about. Now that's encouraging to me because that means the call of God will never take me where the grace of God will not sustain me. The call of God will never take me where the grace of God will not sustain me. Because He's not only all-knowing today, He's all-knowing tomorrow. So I can surrender my life to Him. Let's move on to M. He's merciful. He's merciful. Man, I made a statement about the mercy of God one time that forever got me in trouble. Verse 7, Psalm 95, For He is our God. We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. We are, he is our God. Notice the first person pronouns. Our God. We are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Three times there He alludes to the very fact that we belong to God. Man, you're talking about this, this sovereign God and we belong to Him. And I made this statement. The reason you and I struggle with God's elect is because you and I think we're entitled to God. We think He owes us something. So I made this statement to kind of combat some of that bad theology going around. I made this statement. I said, if God only chose to save one person in all of human history, all of human history, if God, if God, now I, I, I know I'm fabricating something here, and Richie just preached about fabrication, so stay with me. But if God, if God only chose in all of human history, right now 7.6 billion people walking on the face of the planet, we don't know how many will forever walk and has walked. But if, if God said, out of all of human history, sin has deformed you and, and, and caused to be separated from me, but in all of human history, I'm only going to save one person. Most of us would go home in American homes and we would talk about how awful, how mean, how dare God do that. And that's in our flesh. But scripturally, we're only left to go home and cry out to how merciful God is to even save one sinful, sin-filled, separated person. Guys, don't you dare enter a season of entitlement. I really thought COVID shutting the church down and sending us to our homes would fix some of it. Only to see a church come back, settle down in the pews, and if we're not careful, begin to complain about the very things when we left. I, um, I'm in a lot of churches. I praise God that it's not here. A lot of our churches would rather fuss about songs than salvation. Baptist hymns than baptisms. Beat than salvations. And it hadn't changed. And I praise God, grace, 
is much different than that. Praise God. He's merciful. He's merciful. Psalm 97 and the second part there that we're not going to deal with says, Today if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. He references Meribah and Massa there in the wilderness where Moses begins to strike the rock. Hebrews quotes this word for word in Hebrews 3. Because it's the illustration of, man, if this, if this God is merciful enough to allow us to hear His voice, you better not harden your hearts. Because you may not hear His voice again. Don't harden your hearts. He's merciful. And then ease, He's exceptional, and we're done. He's the author of my salvation. He starts it, He seals it, He secures it. He's wise, He's eternal, He's sovereign, He's all the omnis. He has all authorities everywhere at the same time. He's omniscient, He's all-knowing in my life. He's merciful. And guys, He's exceptional. Tony, what do you mean by exceptional? I would take you back to verse 3, because I'm telling you, I don't think you can exhaust verse 3. For the Lord is a great God, He's a great King above all gods. I don't know if you did any study on Exodus. Um, Whenever the Lord delivers them out of Egypt, he, he sends the ten plagues. And the reason He sends the ten plagues is because all ten of those plagues represented a God that Egypt was worshiping. And what God did was He sent a plague into their, their town to, uh, to, um, to begin to deal with them. And it's the very God they're worshiping. And what God did is God always swallowed up their God. God is showing them that I am exceptional. I'm bigger and better than any God that you have created. Now, guys, we live in a world that you and I have painted a picture, if we're not careful, that God exists and evil exists alongside of God. And they're running parallel and they're at odds with each other, battling this thing out. We play video games all on our, our Nintendos and it's this good versus evil and there's battling out. That's called dualism and it's not true. It's heresy. We serve a God who's not battling it out with anybody. We serve a God who is seated at the right hand of the throne means the battle is over. It means it's done. It means it's finished. It means the battle is, is done. I, I'm so glad that Jesus cried, and there's a sermon here dealing with the exceptional of God. I'm so glad on the cross He cried, it is finished. He didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. It being the cross, it being me paying the price the propitiation for our sin. If there's one word that I could take with me forever and preach all around the world, it wouldn't be justification, it wouldn't be sanctification, it wouldn't be glorification, it would be propitiation. Because the propitiation of God, Jesus shed His blood and His blood sprinkled on the mercy seat of God and we see the hate of God and the mercy of God come together at the cross in the propitiation. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. So you and I will never experience the wrath of God being poured out on us because Jesus experienced all of that. He is our propitiation and the blood of Christ satisfied the wrath of God and you and I won't ever experience any of that. So him being an exceptional God, there's not this battle going on. Victory is his already. It's his already. So I would conclude with this. He is worthy of all of your worship. He's worthy of your life. Guys, baseball is not worthy of your life. It's not worthy of your life.
had a mom and dad come to me. Their daughter was socially challenged. And they struggled just coming to church. And she come to me and says, Now, Tony, you're not going to see us anymore at church because my daughter has fell in love with horses. We go to horse shows all over the world, and they're only on Saturday and Sunday. I said, okay, that's your decision. It's your decision. But I want you to understand something. A horse is not worthy of your worship. It's not worthy of your worship. Mom and Dad, let me ask you a question in closing. What are you teaching your children that's more worthy of your worship than Jesus? Husbands, what are you teaching your wives to love more than Christ? You know, Ananias and Sapphira there, and then the ones that, remember the ones that got killed there at the offering in Acts? You remember those? Evan, you remember those? You know the reason the woman got killed? It's because she did what her husband told her to do. The husband comes in and lies at the offering, and the Holy Spirit kills him, drops dead in church. Now, like any other wife, the wife shows up three hours late. Hello? <laughs> now, some of you will go back and check me in the book of Acts. She shows up three hours late. I don't know. She might not like the song service. Who knows? But here's what I do know. I know nobody else in that church cared about her. Because if my husband, if I fall over dead, I would hope Grace would call Jenna and say, Now, Jenna, I don't know what lie he told you to tell, but you better not tell that lie because that boy's dead in our sanctuary. And if you tell that same lie, you'll be dead in just a moment. So I know no church cared about her to call her. But I know when she come in, she did what her husband led her to do. And she lied as she come in the church doors. He had taught her to love money more than Jesus. And she lied when she come into church and the Holy Spirit killed her dead. Husbands, what are you teaching to love your wife to love more than Jesus? It's not worthy of your worship. There's nothing in all of creation that's worthy of your worship. I pray, I, I pray, I'm passionate praying that you and I don't be so consumed in America with what we don't have that we miss what we do have. Father, God, God, there is no way under heaven that I have the words to exhaust who you are and what you've done. But Father, in my, in my very small trying of a way, to explain how awesome you are. To encourage my brothers and sisters in their worship, in their praise and adoration, and even in their surrenderance to something that this world, no president, no nation, no state representative, no senator, no mayor, no doctor can ever take away from me. 
God, I would pray that where I have failed to be clear, God, I would pray the Holy Spirit takes this. And though it might not encourage us today, God, we may need it in the morning. Father, don't let Tony, God, don't let me begin to worship my resources more than the source. God, my resources isn't worthy. God, it doesn't profit me not one iota to gain this world and lose my soul. Father, would you do in this room what only you can do in Jesus' name? Amen. Guys, let's stand.